working off of. If you do need notes from this, weren't here this morning, uh, you were in junior churches or you weren't able to be here this morning, just raise your hand. They'll give you some of those same notes. Where we were this morning is we're talking in Mark chapter 9. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. As he is traveling in his last few weeks, he's headed down that way and he's got the disciples with him. And the disciples show this repeated problem that keeps on coming up. That problem is they are arguing with one another. And the argument this time is which one of us is going to be the greatest? Jesus said he's going to go down there. He's going to suffer, die. That means he's going to bring in his kingdom. And once his kingdom comes in, he's going to have to have people on the thrones helping him to rule which one of us is going to be the greatest at that time. And so Jesus, according to Mark chapter 9, sits them down and when they get to the house that evening and he's giving them an eyeball-to-eyeball conversation. And he starts talking to them about what they need to change as far as their attitude. And at the last couple verses of the chapter, this is the text, this is the crux of what he's saying to them. And we pointed out, it sounds kind of strange when you read those last couple verses, for everyone shall be salted with fire, every sacrifice shall be salted with salt, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, have peace with one another. And all that conversation about salt is just really, really culturally um, supported and explains how that all works. That basically this salt is that you're going to be salted with fire, you're going to have trials, and that fire is going to help purify you like salt normally does. It's going to help make you persevere and preserve you in the faith. And he goes on and he talks about that idea that, that this salt, which is a good quality, it's very good, but if you don't have as a Christian, that impact upon others around you. If you've lost your saltiness, then what good are you? And then he concludes with that command, a double command actually, where he says, what you need to do is have salt in yourselves, purity, that idea of being yoked to Christ, being the salt of the earth, and have peace with one another. We made this comment based on this phrase, that his conversation in that house with disciples who aren't getting along can basically be summarized this way, that what you fellas need to do is be God towards one another. Treat one another in a godly fashion. If you can't treat each other right, how are you going to minister outside? If you're not salt-like and helping one another to grow in the family of God, how is it that you're going to have an impact on being the salt of the earth to people outside the church community? And so we said, okay, now let's back up and let's see how he is telling them to do that. Well, that first bit of that conversation came from verses, if you go back where he says to them in verse 33, when they come in the house, what is it that you disputed among yourselves? And they said, well, they didn't respond. They were quiet. And he said, he, you know, he knew that they were arguing over who's the greatest. And basically his command is, if any man desires to be first, the same shall be last, the servant of all. And we pointed out exactly what that meant, that he's saying, you need to be a diakonoi, somebody to serve and wait on others, not have people wait on you. So get rid of this argumentative spirit, work at ministering to one another. Then he picks up a child and he uses this talia, same word as a servant or a child in Aramaic, and he says, you need to receive, you need to care for one another like you would a child. And even, by the way, these children that you guys wouldn't care for, reach out to others. Reach out to others. Well, right away, then you have John responding by saying, wait a minute, I, we saw somebody else doing ministry and we told him to stop. Jesus uses that part of the conversation to teach this. If you're going to treat each other godly, seek to build one another up, not tear down. And that's where the conversation goes, where John, James says, we saw this, James or John, 
I'm mixing it up here, where he, say, where he makes that comment in the following verses. John answered, said, we saw this guy casting out demons. We told him he needs to stop because he's not following us. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't forbid somebody. And he basically gives them three reasons why you don't discourage. Because no spiritual ministry can be spiritually productive unless it's based on Christ. He says, he cannot be doing this ministry, casting out demons, unless he's really yoked up with me. And so he says that the next statement is, whosoever is not against us is for us. So don't oppose other believers who are carrying out the same gospel, the same ministry, but in a different group setting or a different fashion, then that's fine. They're not against you. We're not in competition. We're not, we're not, you know, we're not in, you know, enemies in this task. We're working in our local communities, our local churches to do the task to spread the gospel. And then basically he summarizes it like we saw this morning and we kind of wound down here in verse 37. He expands, or I'm sorry, uh, down in verse 41, he expands the concept by saying, hey listen, whoever gives a cup of water to somebody in need in my name, that's going to be rewarded. And so he commends any kind of ministry, even if it's different than what we're doing, or even if it's less than casting out the demons. And it can be done by anybody. And he simplifies ministry this way by saying it can be done by anybody at any level to minister to even the children and to others and this is what you're supposed to do. Be godly towards one another, minister to each other. Then he continues the conversation in a really, really um, strong emphasizing way where he goes into as he continues another whole idea how to be godly towards one another. And um, I'm going to jump down here and get to it. He says be godly by seeking to draw others to Christ not by driving them away. Don't drive people away, but draw them to Christ. Watch how he does this. And it's an interesting conversation as he continues in this context of being salt and peace towards one another. He makes this comment, verse 42. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. He returns to the child illustration. He's been disrupted by, by John's comments about the, about the man casting out the demons. So Jesus returns and says, talks about the little ones. Now in this conversation that, we, that he has, is it a physical little child or is it a spiritual little child? And there's a lot of debates. There's a lot of trees that have fallen. There's a lot of ink. There's a lot of space that's on computers about this whole big discussion. What kind of child is he talking about? And he goes on and he makes comments that to me, as he makes the comments, that's really not the point of his passage to figure out, is it a spiritual babe in Christ, which it probably is, or is it a physical little child? The point is still the same. The point that he's giving is, listen, when it comes to these little ones, little in the faith or little in understanding in general because they're physically little, you've got to be careful with this, that you do not stumble other people and drive them away from the gospel. Do not cause somebody to rethink faith. Do not cause somebody to stop fellowshipping in church. Do not do something. Do not say something. Do not create a situation where people do not want to have your Christ because of what you said or did or how you treated them or how you gave as an example. And so he makes it very clear, strong statement, do not stumble somebody in their faith. Now you and I know this. 
We know from other passages that this can happen so easily. It can happen to baby Christians. It happened, we looked at this about three weeks ago, we commented out of the book of Galatians that even godly people like the Apostle Peter stumbled a group of people when they came to worship. You remember the setting in Galatians chapter 2? Peter is working in the church of Antioch. He is visiting that church. That is the church where as he, was, as he came to visit, you have, I'm sorry, he's, he's with Barnabas at the time, visiting Barnabas. But there's a situation where what he, in that city he is coming. Barnabas and Paul are working in the city of Antioch. It is made mostly of Gentiles. When they come, uh, when Peter comes to examine the work, there are some Jews there. And Peter and Barnabas are there and they're fellowshipping with the Gentiles. But when they see the Jews walking in who are investigating the Jewish believers, who are investigating to see what help they need, those two guys fall back on their old form of prejudice. They get up from the table and they do not sit any longer in fellowship with the Gentile believers. They go only to the Gentile folk. And it causes a stumbling here. It causes, you know, Barnabas to be caught up with it because Peter did it. You and I need to be careful in our example, even in fellowship, even in what we do culturally, that could adversely affect the gospel. You have that same thing happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There's a whole chapter written about this that you've got to be careful that what you do doesn't offend a weaker brother, a, a younger brother in the faith. And remember, that setting is just like this picture where there's food that are given to idols in some of these far eastern countries. And the believers then would have the opportunity, like if this were the case back in Corinth, that food that's given to the idols would be taken out back and be sold in an open marketplace. And some would buy that and they would eat that. It was discounted food. They would buy it, eat it. But there were some others who were saying it was offered to an idol. We can't eat it. And the, the, the debate is, was it, was it affected by the idol? No. But is it, does it affect the concept, stumble some people who were involved with that religion in the past? Yes. Therefore, Paul concludes and says, if you stumble another brother or sister, you sin so against Christ. His point is, we've got to be careful. We don't put a stumbling block in front of another Christian. And he's driving home this point. And it's, the, it's an idea that you and I need to strongly think that Jesus is saying, be careful not to stumble. My mentor in the faith, one of, one of, to me, one of the most heroic men in the faith. And I'll never forget, he told the story in seminary how his church was involved. And I shared this with you years ago. They were involved with a baseball, a softball league. And he said this softball league was something that got competitive between the different churches in that area down north of Philly. And so what happened, he says, he and his other church were competing each other for the league championship. And he said, I wasn't that good of a player, but I'm competitive. And he said, so I knew that the pitcher for the other team was a fellow who had a kind of an irrational temper. He could easily get distracted and you could, you, if you got under his skin, he wouldn't play well. So he said, I stood over by the first baseline when our team would be batting. And he said, I would stand there in the coach's box and I would say things to the pitcher. And I would just ridicule the picture, pitcher and mock the pitcher. And he said, I got into his head. So that after a couple innings, he's with the softball and the pitching. He said, he's all over the place. And he said, I got him rattled and we got the lead. He said, we were so excited. And everybody's saying, keep it up. You know, keep it up, Pastor. You're doing a great job. You know, you've got him rattled. And you, our team is, you know, and this, his, the, the pastor who's sharing this said that we were getting the head and kind of getting a, a large lead in the game. So he said, every inning. I'd go out there and I'd stand there and I would ridicule and mock and say statements that were cutting statements. 
He said, finally that guy about the seventh inning, that guy just threw his glove down, came off the, play, off the, bay, uh, the pitcher's mound, came over to me, looked me square in the eye, said, if this game means this much to you, you can have it and you can have the Christ that you claim you serve. And he said the guy never went back to church again. The other church told him that he was so offended by how this was conducted, by this, this attitude of overcompetitiveness and just overboard, they said he drove that man away from Christ. Can it happen in a sports game that our big mouths can ruin a testimony? Can it happen the way we play a game, we can turn somebody off to Christ by attitude, by actions on the court, on the field? Can it happen by the way we do business, what we say at a business, how we treat somebody who didn't give us the best deal that we could drive them away from Christ? It's, it happens in frequent situations. I was reading a sermon that was tied similar to this text. And the pastor, his name is, is Dykes, is giving the illustration about how we need to be careful that in our Christian life that we don't, use, we don't do things that would stumble others. And he gave as a sermon illustration an experience in his own life. He's a teenager, seventh grade. He's in Alabama. This is in the early 60s. At that time, there was big issues in the 60s. Some of you would remember some. It's ancient history to you. There was still in America at that time, there was a lot of segregation. It became very violent in the late 60s, a lot of the segregation issues. That is, blacks had to ride in certain parts of the buses. Blacks and whites would not use the same restrooms, the same fountains, even the same service points of some restaurants and things of that sort. So he's living in the deep south. He's in, in down there in southern Alabama, and he said his community was still, there was a lot of racism in the community. But he said his Sunday school teacher sounded different. He said, Mr. Gamble taught Sunday school and he was a teenager. He knew about him because the other kids would talk about how he was such a neat Sunday school teacher. He was a deacon. He was a leader in the church. He had his own business in town. And people would talk about him and he said, I really looked up to Mr. Gamble. He was a guy that I just thought was the epitome of Christianity and his classes that I got under in that seventh grade, he said they were so good. They were talked about how we should care for one another, love one another. And he talked about that there is no difference between Jew and Greek and Gentile and that we need to, as Christians, set the standard for the community of being able to embrace anybody who calls upon Christ as their Savior and reach out to everybody. He said the thrill of his life as a seventh grader, the thing that he wanted was a summer, was a job, a summer job or a school year job that he could work on Saturdays. Mr. Gamble, his Sunday school teacher, offered him a job to work at his feed mill. And so he would work on Saturdays from 7 a.m. until 5 p.m. and he would earn a whole $4 for the day. That was big bucks. You know, back in that time. And so he said, I'd go to work. And he said, several Saturdays went by. And he says, I remember one Saturday in particular. I'm picking up and loading up a number of different sacks of grain. And I hear some commotion down towards the back of the, of the mill. And he says, and I look down the hallway. And there before the open door, he sees Mr. Gamble. And there's this big black man standing there. And he says, I saw Mr. Gamble haul off and clop him on the jaws, lifted the man off the ground. The man falls to the ground and doesn't move, knocked him out cold. He said, I hurried down there as did the other employees because I wanted to see where the action was. 
And we get down there, he said, you know, Mr. Gamble, what happened? Did the guy attack you? No. Did the guy, did the guy try to rob from us? Did you stop him in, in doing something? No. Mr. Gamble, why'd you hit him? The man was going to use the restroom that's, not, that's marked whites only. Dykes writes, in the, or says, in the, as he continues, he said, I remember as a seventh grader, though I lived in a culture where that's the way it was, he said, that wasn't the issue for me. The issue was, that's not what this guy taught. That's not what this guy promoted. That's not what this Mr. Gamble said in our Sunday school class on a regular basis. He was, in other words, he said very clearly, Mr. Gamble was a hypocrite. He said one thing on Sunday. He said one thing when he would fill the pulpit, but he was an absolute racist. He said it wasn't the racism that was the problem. It was his hypocrisy that he would say one thing on Sunday and live something totally different in his own business place come on a Saturday. His result, he said, I determined I could care less about Christianity. He said, I still had to go. My parents made me go to church. But he said, I did not listen. And he said, and whenever this man stood up, he said, that was just, that was it. In my mind, he said, I went through a phase of my mind saying that everybody who's a deacon, everybody who's a Sunday school teacher, and worst of all, that guy who gets up and preaches every week, they're probably the same way they're a bunch of hypocrites who play one thing at church and do another thing elsewhere. He said, it caused me to walk away in my spirit for years until God got a hold of me in my upper later teens and early 20s and God really worked in my own heart that the issue is I'm just as much of a hypocrite at times talking about Christ and not living for him. But he was stumbled. He was stumbled. What do you do with the young people in your purview, whether it be at work, whether it be at home, what do you do as far as treating other people, say one thing and do another? Say one thing about people when you're talking face-to-face and another and you think it doesn't affect your kids? And it doesn't affect younger ones who are watching you? Jesus says you got to be really careful. you got to be careful that you don't stumble. you got to be consistent. You've heard the silly story. But the guy who drove up behind another guy sitting at a, red, at a red light and he's waiting to get going and all of a sudden the light turns green and the, green and the car in front, he can tell he's fooling with the map or papers or something, not sure where he's going to go, toots the horn, come on, get moving. Well, the guy fooled around so much with whatever he was doing that the light turned back red before he started going, then he stopped. The guy in the second car he was so upset, he rolls down the window and he yells out the window a bunch of, a bunch of things about how, you know, what are you doing? Can't you drive? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I never noticed until I had my tirade. I never noticed at all that right over here, sitting here in the driveway, you know, of a business was a police car. And he said, once I caught the police car, I thought I better behave and calm down. The light turns green, we take off. He says, but I don't go more than a block and the police car comes behind, turns on the light and pulls me over. The officer comes up and says, get out of the car. He says, he's not even polite. Just get out of the car, sir. You need to come back here. And he says, why? What did I do? Are you going to tell me it's illegal to get mad at another driver? No, sir. Put your hands on the hood. Just remain there. Stay here. I want to see your documents. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. After a bit, the policeman comes back and says, okay, I'm sorry, but 
You know, here's your paperwork, you can go. What right do you have to stop me for just yelling at somebody? He says, well, that's not why I stopped you. He said, recently in this area of the community, we've had a number of of car robberies. And I saw the way you were yelling at the guy, and I noticed as you pulled away that you had bumper stickers about your church and about loving Jesus and about loving for others, and I thought to myself, you do not belong in that car. I stopped you to check if you were the thief that's been stealing the cars. You. The way you talk, the way you drive, the way you treat others, is it consistent with the T-shirts you wear? You know, the teens get all these t-shirts. Does it click that what you're doing, how you're acting, promotes this same, uh, same Christ? The way that you do in your business, and you have signs or tracks laying out there, does it, does it equate with the, the way you conduct yourself, the way you handle things, with all the literature that you have available to be a good witness? See, that's what Jesus is talking about. Do not stumble other people. Do not drive them away. And what's interesting is where he goes from that statement. He then makes some statements about hell. How do they tie together? How does the next statement about if your hand offends you, cut it off. But your eye's a problem, you know, pluck it out. How does that fit with what he's just said? It fits like a hand in a glove if we look at the context and look at it totally. What he does is he goes on. He, after he makes a statement, whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it's better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck. Now that's the first thing he says. This is serious stuff. If you stumble somebody, you better be careful. Why? Because there's dangerous consequences. It would be better for you that one of these stones that were used to grind out grain, he said that it were... This is the punishment you deserve for causing somebody to walk from Christ, for stumbling somebody from the faith. And we take one of those stones. Look how heavy those are. We wrap it around your neck and we throw you in the deepest of seas. There's no way, you know, that any of us in this room are going to be able to survive. This is serious stuff. In fact, if we brought it to modern day, it would look more like this. This is what is deserving for stumbling somebody. A Mr. Gamble or whoever it could be or, or the preacher who's standing by the sidelines and say, but we won the trophy. It makes no difference. Jesus says, you may have won a cultural argument. You may have won a trophy, but this is what you deserve. A millstone hung around your neck because you have just, just hurt somebody spiritually to such a degree it is so horrible, you deserve, a, you deserve a horrible execution. That's what Jesus is saying. In his mind, stumbling a little one is really, 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 really dangerous. Whether it be my children, your children. Whether it be some teens, whether it be some baby Christians, you and I need to be careful. Why? Because of serious consequences that could come against us for doing this. And then from there he talks further and goes into this whole discussion about hell. Well, that's an obvious. It's an obvious that we don't want to stumble somebody because if they end up in hell, what a horrible place for them to end up when we have caused them to question the faith, when we have caused them not to listen to the gospel. That, we understand that that's horrible, but that's not the command in the verse. That's, that's a, understood. Look who he talks to in the next phrase. 
In the next phrase, after he says the serious consequence that you know it's better to be having the millstone and cast about, then he says, by the way, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than you having to go with both hands into hell and into the fire that, that's never quenched. Where the worm dies not, the fire is not quenched. If your foot is causing you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that never would be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if the eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes. There's a couple of these passages, a couple of those verses that some of you may not have in your Bible because they are debated. Were they inserted as just a repetition? It doesn't change the whole nature of the context. Well, you know, whether it's repeated again once or twice or whether in the original or whether it wasn't where the worm dieth not. That's not the issue. The issue in this text, with no matter how many illustrations, whether it be your hand, your foot, your eye, how many he uses in this text, even if he uses just one, the point is, you and I need to be careful. One, we don't stumble others because of the possibility of them going to hell. You and I need to be careful that we don't let somebody else stumble us so that we would be driven away from Christ. It is so serious that we do not get around people who could stumble us. That we do not get around individuals who don't care about how they live and how they act and then mimic that and that we as a group then stumble somebody. He says it's so important you need to cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, you need to cut off your foot. Now he is not talking actual self-mutilation. How do we know that? Well, you could, you could cut off both hands and still have a sinful heart. Okay, one hand being cut off doesn't change your spirit. He's using illustrative speech. He's using figurative speech that you need to do something drastic. If it is some things that you want, cut off your hands so you don't reach for them anymore. It's a symbolic gesture. If you're going places or in traffic, you're walking with people who would, who would draw you away from Christ, cut off your foot so you can't be around them anymore. Well, we understand if we cut off both feet, we could still be around them through electric wheelchairs and things like that. It's a symbolism. It's the idea of just take a drastic measure. Do not let somebody influence you to go away from Christ. Do not let other people, do not let other friends, do not let some things you desire, the riches of this world, to pull you away from serving Christ so that you end up drawing away from Him and then drawing others with you. His point is, get away from people. Get away from things that would cause you to walk away from Christ. Be very careful, your companions. Be very careful, your goals in life. Be very careful what you're looking at and what you're entertaining so that you make sure that, first of all, you seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus has already made that, his crux of another message. So he's challenging him here. He's saying you've got to be very, very careful. You've got to be careful you don't stumble somebody because of the consequence to you and the consequence to them. You've got to be careful that you don't get stumbled. Why? Because the consequences to you, and he goes on. And he warns his disciples about this area of driving people from Christ or being driven from Christ, and he talks about the realities of hell. 
And he makes several comments about hell. Look what he talks about. Where he goes on, he mentions where the worm dieth not. Where he mentions where the idea in verse 43, where the fire is never quenched. Where he mentions that twice in verse 43 and then again in verse 45. What he's doing is he's making these statements that you and I need to just pause and think this through. Hell is real. Hell is a real spot. It is not a figurative idea. It is not something that we stir up and use at church just to scare people. It is a real place. And it's a horrible place. It's a really, really bad place. He uses an illustration that these guys would understand. You and I don't. He uses hell, and if you look at your footnotes, it says Gehenna. When he uses that in verses 43 and 45. Gehenna is a valley that's outside of Jerusalem. If you lived in Jerusalem, you'd understand exactly what he's talking about. It's the city dump. If we go back into the Old Testament, we'll find it called Tophet. It shows up in Jeremiah and Isaiah with this terminology, the valley of Tophet. Or the valley of bones, Isaiah mentions one time. It is a deep narrow gulch that's right next to the walls of Jerusalem when Jesus is there. Now earlier it was a little bit outside the city. The reason that it is such a horrible place is back in the Old Testament this became a worship center for Molech and other worship, other gods. And some of the people, including some of the kings, took their children down there and did literal baby sacrifices to the gods. Well, then when all of a sudden they had revival under Josiah and other good kings, they condemned that ground. Nobody would use that ground. It's a cursed ground because of the pagan ritualism and the people, human sacrifices that were done. So Jeremiah very clearly condemns this and this land's never to be used. So it was never used. As the city grew up and people built around, they didn't use this little glen, this little gulch. They, nobody, nobody was there. Instead, what they used as time went by, it became the city dump. The garbage would go there. Some of the refuse would go there. If somebody was a criminal and there was a death and nobody knew who to claim the body, the body could go there. And it would be just basically burned up down in this valley. It became a pauper's graveyard for a period of time until somebody was able to return money to the temple and they bought a potter's field to be used for the poor people. But this is the spot, Hinnom. Tophet. This is the valley that Jesus is referring to and the disciples would understand. That's a place outside Jerusalem that stinks. Because where the worm dieth not, let me put it in modern terms, where the maggots keep on living. Stink, right? When you think maggots, you got stinky garbage. Okay? Where, he says, the fire, they keep, kept the fires going. Why? I remember, I remember living back in central Minnesota as a teenager, just down the road from our place, within a quarter mile, was the town dump. And they would burn there constantly to burn up the refuse. And if the wind would turn and come our direction, yuck, you know, towards our house. And we could always walk out the door and go, oh, okay, you know, they're burning at the dump today. It just has that, that horrific, that odor, that, that stench about it. Jesus is talking that this is Gehenna. This is what hell is like. That he says that basically, and what's interesting is the New Testament uses Gehenna several times. In, and I've given you some of the listings. G, out of the 12 times that it's used in the New Testament, Jesus uses it 11 times to describe hell. And he describes it because the conditions, the stench, I think he also uses it because it's outside, quote-unquote, the city of blessings. And so he uses it as a picture of hell. You're outside the place of blessing. You're outside the city of Zion, the residence of God. You're outside there in this dump. 
And he talks about this really bad place as a place where there is constant fire, pain and torment. He talks about it as the, that the worm dieth not. He talks about it being eternal, no escape. He gives the picture of that this is a place where people will end up if they do not believe on me. He's made that clear in other messages. He's making it clear in this thought that if somebody is driven away and stumbled in their faith, they could end up in this hell. If you are allowing yourselves to be stumbled, pulled away from faith, he says, then then if you don't put faith in Christ, you could end up here. And it's a horrible, awful place. And no matter what you say, you can deny its existence. You can pretend you can get away from it. But if you don't put your faith in Christ, this is where you end up. There is no running away from hell. And and, and there's no escape from it unless you believe in Jesus Christ and repent of your sin. There's a fellow back in history that some of you remember reading about, Wilbur McLean. He's famous in the Civil War era. He has two homes during the Civil War era. The one on the left is a home that's near Manassas, Virginia. The first battle of Bull Run in 1861 happened right on some of his farm property. He and his family were living there. He was so appalled by the war, by the horror of it. He said, I'm selling my property very cheaply and we're moving to the wilderness side of Virginia. We're getting away from this. We're going, in fact, here's what he said. We are going where the sound of battle would never reach us. We will get so far away from this conflict and it'll never touch our lives again. So he bought a house on the other side of Virginia, on the far side, west side of Virginia, and moved there into the wooded area. Let's fast forward into April of 1865. April 1865, they have this battle that's called the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse. Appomattox Courthouse is the town, is the vicinity where the last battle of the Civil War took place. In fact, in Appomattox Courthouse, what is signed in that community? The surrender by Lee to Grant. Do you know whose home that took place in? Wilbur McLean's house that he bought. The battle took place around it and the surrender took place in his parlor. He may have wanted to deny war and run away from it, but it was a reality he couldn't get away from because it was consuming. You may deny the reality of hell. You may say, I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. I'm going to get far from it. I'm going to go to a church that doesn't talk about it. I'm never going to read a book about it. I don't want to hear a sermon about it. It doesn't erase the reality that this is where your friends, your family, your relatives, or you could end up unless you're born again. It's a reality. It's, a, it's, it's something that Jesus was so concerned about that people wouldn't end up there that Jesus gave his very life so people couldn't go there. That Jesus gave of his own life and then not only that, he invites people to believe on me. Believe on me. I don't want you to go to this horrible place. I'm your, I'm your rescue from this. You have to put faith in me. And then what he does is he warns people that you don't get preoccupied with the things of this world. In fact, it's better for you to pluck out your eye, cut off your feet, cut off your hand, than to be so preoccupied and end up in this horrible, horrible, horrible place. The bottom line is Jesus is very concerned that people do not end up in hell. My question to you is, are you that concerned? He was so concerned he gave up his life. Would you give up a couple hours just to witness? Would you give up some time to go on the internet and share your faith and your story? Would you give up, make the effort of warning people with tracts? 
Would you get involved with Outreach Act, Neighborhood Night, and other ministries that would give us the opportunity to share the gospel of warning people? That's what we're called to do. That's why Jesus said, this is such a horrible place. I, I, I just do whatever you can to make sure they don't end up there. But he ends up warning the believers and saying to them, be very careful. You don't create an obstacle. You don't put something in the road. I told you before that one of the camps we did years ago, or one of the elementary activities, and one of the, one of the young men had a fabulous hiding place. That one of the, this teenager said we were doing hide-and-go-seek through the building. He, I'm walking across the old, the old hall there, and I have all the lights out, the security lights, and the kids are running around the building, and I'm walking through the middle of the room. I have an idea where I'm at in the room, so there's no problem. And all of a sudden, I fell over. I was tripped up. Charlie decided he would hide in the middle of the floor, just laying on the floor. You know, his idea was nobody would find him. I did. Okay, you know, the wrong way. He was an obstacle in my path. I wasn't expecting it. You and I do not want to be an obstacle in the path of somebody walking in darkness and then we trip them up and they never see the truth. Or they reject the truth because of our attitude, our language, our response, our lack of ethics, our lack of grace. And he's basically saying, be very, very careful. You do not influence anybody to reject the faith. That might be, we got to be careful what we say about other believers, about ministries. Be careful what we say about church. Be very, very careful that somebody who is, who is so fragile in the faith that all it takes is just some silly comment to push them over the edge. Got to be careful about that. And we need to be careful that we do not let someone else cause us to walk away from Christ. The bottom line of what Jesus is saying in this section is this, that you and I need to be godly by drawing people to Jesus, not pushing them away. Okay, how does that apply to us? Do we draw people who come and visit? Like those who are here this morning for the first time who said afterwards they were looking for a church that, they told my wife and I this, looking for a church where they have the, the love of Christ. How did you do? How would somebody gauge in the way you interact with them who is hungering, but they're, they, you know, the gal told me there's, you know, she's a babe in the Lord, she, or she said, I'm young in the Lord, I, want to, I, I need to get growing around other people. People are looking when they come to visit in a place like this, they're looking for outreach. They're looking for concern and care to be received like the little ones. How are you doing in that area? Teens, how are you going to do this week at camp? We are going to have a number of unsaved teenagers at camp. You've got to be really careful then what you say, the jokes you say, the language you use that you don't turn somebody off to the gospel of Christ that's being presented to them. That they just don't look and say, well, you're no different than the other kids. You need to show a difference. Conduct in difference. Game playing in difference. Attitude and respect. That's going to make an impact to those who are coming. I think this is our largest group of what we suspect for camp. A larger number than ever before of kids that do not have, that we know of, a walk with the Lord, or uh, they're not saved. There's going to be an evangelistic opportunity for the teens. How are you going to respond this week? How are you going to respond to your relatives who, they, they question 
Christ. They question real Christianity. How you treat them, how you act, it's so important. This whole text is all about you and I coming to a point where we're spiritually growing enough that we say, I want Christ to mature me so I serve other people. I want Christ to use me to be an encouragement to others and help Christ help me not to have such a critical, cynical attitude towards, towards other ministries and ministers. Help me to be cautious with that. Christ, help me to be ever so careful about my attitude, my actions, so that I don't trip somebody up in the faith. Oh, Christ, please help me. Please help me, because greatness is achieved in small ways. And this greatness that he talks about in this text, it is available for all of us, because all of us, we can serve one another. All of us, be careful about our testimony. All of us, need to be individuals that reach out, that reach out, that reach out. 